Epistle lesson for this morning is Romans chapter 6, reading verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather on this day of all days in which we commemorate the resurrection of your Son, we give thanks to you for your word. And we come weak and dependent, asking once again that you grant us your spirit to illumine our minds and to give us understanding of all the import of these great events, what these things mean for us that Christ has trampled down death. And so write them upon our hearts. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Over the past several weeks, we've considered the so what of the gospel as we've worked through Paul's epistle to the Romans. And we've seen that at the heart of the gospel are historical events, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But the meaning of the gospel is not simply locked up in history to be the subject of apologetics. But we've seen that the meaning of the gospel in the event of death and resurrection has tremendous relevance, that it's not just simply truths that happened then and there, but they're truths that can transform here and now. We've seen that the relevance of the gospel is that our sin and our condemnation, our judgment has been taken care of by another one who was righteous and who stands in our place and goes to the cross on our behalf. We've been freed from the guilt and the condemnation of sin. This is relevant to us who are long wearied by the guilt and the power of sin. And today, Paul, though, goes a step further because there was a question asked, there was an accusation made. Well, if this is really true, if God frees us from all the guilt and condemnation of sin, why don't we just sin it up all the more? Why don't we just make a real mess of it? Perhaps you've tried it. But we learned something else, another benefit of the gospel 
That because Jesus has died and because he has been raised and because we're united to him through baptism in faith, that not only are our sins pardoned, but also the power of sin has been broken and it has been shattered. That there's a dynamic at work now within us because we are in Jesus and because Jesus is in us that is at work to subdue sin. And the main question for us this morning is how exactly does that work? When you hear that you are dead to sin, it certainly should shake you and it should rattle you. Oftentimes that does not match our experience. So how exactly does it work? September 21st, 2005, JetBlue Flight 292 took off from Burbank, California. They were to arrive at JFK in New York City some hours later. Not long after takeoff, an announcement rifled through the cabin. It wasn't the typical announcement that they were awaiting for drink services. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Unfortunately, there has been a malfunction with the landing gear on our aircraft. They all knew what this meant. Tests had been run. The plane had been examined even from the ground. There was a crash landing in the near future. For three hours, the plane flew figure eights out over the Pacific Ocean. They were doing so for two reasons. One, to decrease the weight of the aircraft. Another, to burn off fuel because it's combustible and it could explode. After final approach, they skidded and sparked to a magnificent stop at LAX. And miraculously, no one was injured, just in case if you're feeling anxious. But obviously, from the announcement from the pilot that the landing gear had malfunctioned, to those long three hours flying figure eights over the Pacific Ocean, to the final event where they skid to a stop amid smoke and flames and sparks, the passengers on the plane had died a thousand deaths anxiously awaiting what was going to happen, most of them believing that surely this was the end of their life. They were forced to come to terms with their own death. They were faced with mortality in a very confrontational way that day. One passenger says that he had gotten into an ugly argument with his fiancée that morning. They had not reconciled. He had boarded the plane and left for New York. And so on one of the video recordings, he's actually captured recording a message to his fiancée. He makes apologies and attempts to make amends, hoping that somehow she would receive this on the other side of his imminent death. And he says these words, I love you, I love you, and you can have everything. It's all yours. His family later teased him. They said, oh, she got everything, did she? You mean your 91 Camry and all your credit card debt? That was so, <laughs> so magnificently generous of you. 
But this is what was going on on the plane. He's but one example. They were adjusting themselves to the reality of the announcement that the landing gear malfunctioned and that planes without landing gear are not very successful coming down onto concrete. They believed they were going to die, that they were at the end. And then came the final descent and the crash landing itself. The three-hour event involved three stages, the announcement, then the long wait as they adjusted themselves to that announcement, and then the final event, the crash itself. And it's important for us today, as we come to terms, as we reckon with the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it's important for us to see that our lives correspond to this as well. That there is indeed an announcement. And then there's a tedious, long waiting period in which we adjust ourselves to that announcement. And then there is a final climatic event. And so this morning, if we are to grapple with the so what of the gospel, we have to consider those three things. And so first, there is an announcement made about us. And this is the announcement. It's fairly plain, clear, simple for the Apostle Paul. But he states in verses 3 and 4 that in our baptism, we participate in Jesus' death and in Jesus' resurrection. In verse 6, we learn that our old self, that is our sinful nature, has been crucified. That that old self is dead. If you follow along in verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And what Paul is announcing here is that a decision has been made. And that's not a decision that involves your will. It's not a decision that involves your negotiation or your choice. In fact, it's a decision that's been made by God on your behalf. God has done this for you. It's not something we do. It's a decision made about us. It's something done for us. And the announcement is that something definitively has happened to you who are joined to Jesus that you participate in his death and in his resurrection. It's startling, it's jarring to recognize that when we are baptized into Christ and united to him, that this is what happens to us. We have died, and in this death, we've been set free from the power and the control of sin. This is the announcement. Startling. The second thing that we see here, though, is that this announcement leads to a certain dynamic that is at work within us. Obviously, the announcement is shocking, somewhat disturbing, especially when we, re- we re- reflect on our own experience. When we consider ourselves, because even someone with just the slightest sense of self-awareness will confess that they don't feel dead to sin. 
And so how does my experience of life match up with what Paul says here that I have been set free from sin? And it's important to recognize the language that he uses because he uses the language once again of power and of reign. And what he is explaining is that we've been set free from the power, the controlling power, the reign of sin over our lives that has a grip on us in our sinful nature. And so we've been freed from that controlling power, but yet we've not been freed from the presence of sin. And so the dynamic involves us adjusting ourselves to this announcement that has been made over us. That we are adjusting ourselves just like the passengers on flight 292 to their imminent death. We are adjusting ourselves to the fact that we have died and that we have been raised with Jesus and that this is the substance of the Christian life is to live into that adjustment, to actualize it, to believe it. Because yes, we still remember our old identities. We remember our old habits. We remember our old patterns. And sin still pretends and masquerades as if it has control over us. But the task of the Christian life is one of faith. It's to believe the announcements that God makes over us in Jesus. And God has announced that you are dead and you have been freed. And so our task is one of faith to believe and to trust. You see this spelled out in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the way you're to consider, or it could be translated count or reckon. We find this word all through the book of Romans in chapter 5, to count, that God counts or considers us righteous in Christ. Now we are to do the counting. We are to count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus. And friends, this is the discipline that we have the opportunity and the freedom to undertake, to remember that this is who God announces we are. And we're to believe and to trust and to move into that reality, knowing that it'll be imperfect and partial and we'll, consi- we'll continue on with our divided selves. But to accept and to come to terms with that announcement that God has made over us, that by grace we've been freed from the control of sin. In the Colson family, we have somewhat of a skipped generation. My grandfather was born in 1903. Before he passed away while I was a sophomore in college, we had some very old-fashioned customs, you could say, in the family. We would normally visit for a day, and we'd travel up in the morning and then leave before evening. He didn't want us on the road in the dark. But as the afternoon drew to a close, the entire family would gather outside in the driveway. We would pull away in our Caprice classic wood grain backwards facing seats if you remember them. It's awesome. And the windows would be rolled down and we were waiting for my grandfather to begin the liturgy. He would then say, remember who you are. And we would respond, no, you remember who you are. 
But that was his encouragement always to us. Remember who you are. Don't go be something that you're not. And friends, that's at the heart of Paul's message to us today, that we are to remember who we are. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great English preacher, captured it well. He said, if I fall into sin, as I do, it is simply because I don't realize, I don't remember who I am. And this is the dynamic at play within us in our divided selves where we fail to remember who we are and we give ourselves to the absurdity of sin even though it has no control over us. And so we're to do the hard work of remembering. Not to have amnesia. Not to be those with short-term memory. But to press against this. To walk away from the old ways and old patterns and old habits knowing that we're free to do so. This is the dynamic at work as you adjust yourself to that announcement that you are dead and now newly alive. But finally, this death and resurrection is also an event that lies ahead of us. Not only is it an announcement that takes place in the past over your life and over my life, and a dynamic at work in the present, but is also something future that is oriented towards us. And this is the great confidence that the Christian lives in. Our confidence is not in our own strength. It's not in our aptitude. It's not in our skills. It's not in our accomplishments. No, it's in the righteous one, who because he is the righteous one, death could not hold him. Death requires a charge of sin. But on that day, Satan overreached, and he sought to bring the Lord of life, the one righteous one in the history of the world, under his claim. And so he destroys death. He comes out of death. And there he defeats it. And friends, this is the confidence of the Christian. It doesn't look towards ourselves. It looks towards the one who was raised from death, knowing that we too will share in that. Look at Paul's argument in verses 8 and 9. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And the confidence of the Christian is not in our radical testimony or the strength of our own personal faith. But the confidence of the Christian is in the object of faith. Jesus, the one who conquers death and has been raised again, this is the great certainty that the Christian has about that future event. Because there is a one-to-one correspondence. There is an announcement that has been made over your life that you are dead to sin. And there's also the fact that we have inherited from the garden that each one of us will also die personally. And so the question for us, the so what of the gospel, is how do we approach that? How do we handle it? It's been noted that human beings oftentimes manifest an odd sense of humor in the face of death. It's called gallows humor. It was present on flight 292 as they took their final descent into LAX after three very anxious hours. The pilot gave some instructions signed off, 
and then came back on the air and said, flight attendants, please prepare the cabin for arrival. (laughs) The humor broke somewhat of the tenseness on the flight. But friends, it's instructive to us because there is a certain levity to the Christian life. It doesn't mean that we disregard the sin and the sorrow and the sadness of our world at all. We don't skip over it. Actually, we so deeply embrace it and understand it. But we know that it has gone into reverse because Jesus is up from the dead. And so, yes, we must meet that death. But we know that that's not the end. That death is not ultimate. That it has no hold on us because it has no hold on Jesus. And so there is a Christian striding through life towards death. Not self-confident, but a confidence grounded in Christ. Friends, this is the great so what of the gospel. That our guilt and our condemnation, our judgment has been taken by another. But then in being united to him, not only that, but we're freed from the power of sin and death. And we have the great hope of the future, of life renewed, of the world raised to fullness of life that God always intended for the creation and for us to dwell with him and walk with him. And so the Christian life is one that is lived looking back at a certain announcement made that we are dead and looking forward, looking future to new life on the other side of death. And it is these two anchors for us that draw us into the present and compel us to walk in newness of life in the freedom of the gospel. And so embrace that so what? Embrace all the freedom that God has for you in Jesus. Let's pray and ask for his help. Father, we are somewhat astounded by the statement, the announcement that we are dead. We struggle and we are weak. And so help us to count ourselves this way. May we not count or consider ourselves any other way. Give us grace, God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.